Hello, everyone, and thanks, as, as Kevin was saying, thanks for coming out. I know it's a busy time of the year here and also <laughs> a um, maybe unusually nice time of the year, given the way it's been the last few days. Uh, so I appreciate your coming to hear what I have to say about the Philippines. Um, as I think maybe the Filipinos in the room know, uh, well, and other Southeast Asianists here, uh, the Philippines often doesn't get that much attention, and in a sense it's a little unfortunate that... Uh, you know, it takes a somewhat potentially disturbing election like the, uh, the 2016 election to sort of bring the Philippines back into uh, the public eye a little bit more. Um, but that's just the way things go. Um, uh, as Ke just a, a little bit more by way of background, as Kevin mentioned, I um, first went to the Philippines in 1986, just after the EDSA revolution. So I experienced firsthand that transition and that, uh, uh, and eventually wrote a book on the Philippines, uh, published in 1991, called A Changeless Land, Continuity and Change in Philippine Politics. And that pretty much summarizes my, you know, ongoing interest. And I think a lot of Filipinos, this, this big, this, this theme, this big challenge of how much, you know, even with the transition from martial law to elite um, democracy, and since then, over the last 25 years, how much real political change has there been? And so with the election, I'll come to this, but with the election of uh, Rodrigo Duterte uh, last month, uh, once again, this, there's a big question about you know, how much his, 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 uh, his election theme was change is coming, you know, um, exclamation point and fist. So what that, imply, what that might imply uh, uh, those, I'll try to address that issue. Uh, um, so what I um, what I will cover as briefly as possible um, the following um, to understand that I think the election uh, you need to understand a little bit about what preceded it. That being sort of the Aquino administration, at least at a minimum, the last six years prior, the Aquino administration. I'll just touch briefly. And as I say here, I refer to it as sort of the paradox of the Aquino administration or government um, because in many ways it was quite successful, but yet uh, it was not able to, uh, uh, or will now not be able to sustain or continue the agenda that, um, that it had. Uh, then I'll talk a bit about um, just the elections uh, themselves, again, focusing mostly on the presidential, but uh, I can, I can talk to or answer questions about the vice presidential and other other um, seats that were that were contested. Uh, then I will try to characterize a bit uh, Duterte and and what a this is purely speculative. I'm not a scholar, so I'm fairly comfortable <laughs> speculating, but. Um, but I will try to speculate a bit on what a Duterte administration might look like um, and related to that uh, um, sort of a provisional prognosis, or at least actually what this is, is uh, sort of the sorts of events and developments for those who are watching the Philippines, the, the things that they should keep an eye on because they will sort of be indicators of how things are likely to progress, I think. Okay. So we begin with the Aquino government. Uh, um, uh, Benigno Aquino, Aquino III, otherwise known to most Filipinos as Pinoy, uh, the, the son of 
the late uh, President Corazon Aquino and the assassinated uh, opposition leader Nino Aquino, Nino Aquino Jr. Um, and who, as you all know, was elected in 2010. Um, um, so just sort of a quick assessment of, of his administration. Um, his election and administration were, as is now with the Duterte administration, a reaction to what came before it. Um, and that was the, what, nine years, I think, of the administration of Gloria Macapagal Arroyo, which uh, most Filipinos felt was characterized by a lot of corruption, uh, clientelism, um, uh, and the like. Um, and so uh, following the death of Cory Aquino, um, uh, Nino Aquino um, sort of um, rode the sentimentality concerning his mother's administration and the very real, this is important, and the very real frustration and disgust with the prior administration to, to win the presidency his, uh, in 2010. Um, he ran a, on essentially an anti-corruption campaign, uh, which his, his slogan was, if there, if there is no corruption, there will be no poverty. Kung walang korupsi, walang mahirap. And I think he genuinely felt that, uh, actually, I think he actually genuinely believed that, that if you could really implement anti-corruption measures and good government, that it would actually result in reduced poverty. Um, and while he was more successful at the, the first part of that phrase or slogan, uh, uh, it didn't translate into great success in the second part of that slogan. Um, so his administration sort of adopted as its um, late motif, if you want, sort of the Dan Matuit, the straight path, good, clean governance, based really on the thought that um, good leadership, clean leadership would result in good governance. Uh, so it was like, is often the case in the Philippines, it was in many ways highly personalized and in some ways kind of moralistic in that way. Um, uh, but he, um, but he assembled a cabinet of actually very, quite experienced people, a very, in my judgment, quite a good, effective cabinet for the most part. And in fact, there were very few, if any, major corruption scandals during his administration. Um, so, given that uh, the president came to the presidency having just been a, a one-term senator and having served in Congress one or two terms, I forget exactly how many now, um, it was, he wasn't necessarily the, the person you would expect to uh, lead a government effectively, but in a lot of ways, as I say here, I mean, he exceeded a lot of those expectations. Certainly, that's what I feel, and I think... I think Broadly speaking, this, I think most Filipinos, and, and surveys actually uh, suggest this as well. So he was seen as uh, clean and above, generally above the fray of sort of typical, you know, nasty Manila politics. <laughs> um, uh, the straight path, I think people kind of appreciated that and, and um, uh, believed it to be true. Um, but also critics and others sort of saw it as being moralistic and also his approaches to anti-corruption at times being um, sort of uh, uh, somewhat partisan. Um, 
as I mentioned here, he, he assembled, a, uh, I think, quite a strong cabinet, and actually a cabinet that, for the most part, for the better, um, was very stable. Most of the cabinet members lasted the entire six years, which is pretty unusual. Um, there may be, have been, there probably were a few who should have been dismissed, and that became one of the things, one of the uh, sort of criti criticisms against him. Um, and as you <clears throat> probably do know, um, over the last six, year, the six years, the country has posted quite strong economic growth, both for the Philippines, in terms of uh, historically speaking, but also relative to the rest of Southeast Asia, um, with an average of um, somewhere around six. I, I, didn't, I haven't bothered to pull together all the statistics, forgive me, but somewhere in the vicinity of 6% uh, uh, per, per year, um, with the expectation that that is likely to continue. Um, now, it has to be said that a lot of that growth is, a significant portion of that growth is based on uh, remittances. The Philippines is a very remittance-dependent economy. And also the, the, the dramatic growth in business processing, outs business process outsourcing. So um, uh, each of those alone probably account for, I don't know, about 1%, well, 10% of the, each of the 6% growth. So a significant chunk of of the economy is almost uh, self um, self driving. I mean, between the remittances, and as long as you don't screw up the BPOs, you know they just keep going on. At least for the for, for the short to medium term. Um, and in addition to that, uh, his administration made some important uh, efforts at reform uh, uh, PFM. That's uh, public financial management reform, uh, budget reform, something I've been looking at and can talk more about if anybody's interested. Um, both of these things, and the, again, the generally uh, the better uh, management of the, the economy and, and public finances led to significant increases in public spending on health and education. Uh, uh, and uh, as I have here, the CCT, that's the conditional cash transfer, the, the largest, well, it's, it, anti-poverty or intergenerational anti-poverty program in the Philippines. Um, uh, so the money, a lot of more money was going in the right directions. Um, and lastly, some, there were some very important other, some other important policy reforms. Uh, he actually took on the Catholic Church um, to um, push for the passage of a reproductive health bill. Uh, there he took on some, uh, well one, well no, several major economic interests, uh, 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 for the passage of a tax on uh, cigarettes and alcohol. Uh, his administration pushed for the extension of uh, uh, Philippine um, education from, it, right now it's only K to 10 years and it's going to the, you know, the global norm of uh, 12 years. And then lastly and significantly, the, um, an effort, a serious effort to uh, find a peace agreement uh, with the, the Muslims in Mindanao, which um, Unfortunately, it has not worked out. Uh, so you look at all these achievements um, for a, in a six-year administration, and um, it's arguably a pretty impressive uh, set of accomplishments, uh, especially for a country that, for anyone who, well, who's from there or has studied it, you know, is known for having a weak state, uh, a corrupt and ineffective bureaucracy, um, all of those things. Um, so, uh, so these things are show, or to a lot of people, myself included, you know, 
sort of some evidence that, oh, okay, with a proper leadership and good organization and good management, you actually can get some things <laughs> done in the Philippines. Um, uh, not, not everything and not perfectly, but progress, reforms and progress can be made. Um, and that, of course, has been the administration's message as well. Um, so, so that's sort of the positive side. But then there is the other side, which sort of is, what the, in a sense, what the paradox is about. Um, Philippine politics, well, it's a presidential system, for those who don't know that, and it's you know, often characterized as a fairly strong presidential system in a weak state. So the president has considerable power uh, in terms of finances and political influence, but it's a situation with weak political parties, a relatively weak bureaucracy, certainly weaker than Indonesia's, and a politicized bureaucracy more so than Indonesia's. Um, so um, so uh, the role of the president is both very important, but also there are contradictions that even presidential powers can be somewhat limited by, by, by the weaknesses of other institutions. Um, so in any case, um, so the president's very important. Um, as a leader and uh, um, both as in an institutional and in a personal sense in the Philippines because politics are highly personalized in the Philippines. So Aquino was, although he was seen as clean and fairly effective, he was also seen as aloof and sometimes insensitive or uncaring. Um, there were some particularly notable episodes of that. Um, while they were very proud, and Filipinos, I think, in general, have been proud about the, 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 the improvements in the economy, uh, the, the GDP growth itself did not lead to significant job creation, um, some job creation, but not significant job creation over the six years, um, and very little appreciable progress regarding the reduction of poverty levels or inequality levels in the Philippines. Now, you know, any developed economist knows that these things take time, but... but um, but still there was very little movement over the six-year administration. Um, and then for those who were in Manila, living in Manila, or in other major cities, uh, such as myself, um, the, the infrastructure issues, which again are not the, were not the fault of the administrations, they're the, they're the result of you know, multiple years of um, underinvestment in infrastructure. But uh, the traffic now in Manila, I mean, for those who know Jakarta, it's, and I know both, is easily as bad and maybe worse, and they're not building, they're not digging a subway, <laughs> you know. So, um, so the 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 gridlock, just with, with regard to traffic, but also flying in and out of Manila is is difficult. There are port congestion just across the board, and as I say, it's not just limited to Manila. It's also true in Cebu and even in Davao, a city to some extent. So, and these just became apart from the genuine problems that they present as the election came around, needless to say, they became very emblematic of, um, especially for the middle, well, for the urban middle class, very emblematic of sort of the failure of, of the government to, to um, deliver uh, new infrastructure. Um, less talked about, but I would argue very, very important, especially because it relates to the issue of poverty reduction, is um, the, this administration pretty much dropped the ball in terms of agricultural reform. Now, it's a very hugely complicated issue, um, um, but even people in the administration would would agree that the and <laughs> that the 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 secretary of agriculture was not a very effective secretary of agriculture. I, my my assumption or my own guess is that um, the president himself, for whatever reasons, 
just did not sort of um, seize on this as being as being as important as it actually is. Um, that's just my own supposition, um, given where he sort of comes from. But um, but so anyway, uh, ag it's another six years of um, of ineffective and in some ways counterproductive agricultural policies. And and as long as that's going on, you're not at least you're not going to solve the poverty problem without, to some extent, solving the agricultural problem. Um, and then there were, there were, there was a, the particular, just the second to last point. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm, on the, I'm still on the old, sorry, I'm working off of two laptops. Um, the second to last point, uh, there was, of course, this very tragic episode in uh, January of 2015 when uh, Philippine police special forces were trying to apprehend a terrorist down in, in Muslim Mindanao, uh, and a firefight ensued, and 44 of them were killed, and that basically uh, uh, led to the, the collapse of the peace process. Um, so something that, and we can talk more about that if you'd like, but something that actually the, the president was deep, I, I, I'm very sure, was deeply committed to um, through his own through his own judgment, <laughs> through his own decisions, he, he ended up um, actually scuttling uh, a process that he, he, he had invested a lot in. Um, so those were sort of the, the, the negatives, um, most of which were raised, in fact, in one way or another during the, during the campaign, not surprisingly. Um, and then lastly, this is, again, part of the paradox. When the president did endorse Mar Rojas, his, uh, um, his um, secretary of uh, local government and a close associate who had stepped aside for the president so that, so that Aquino could run for president in 2010, so he had a, a very real debt of gratitude to Mar Rojas. When President Aquino endorsed Mar Rojas, to be the Liberal Party candidate, which everyone was expecting, there was little doubt about that. Uh, it did, in fact, improve uh, Mar Rojas's uh, um, numbers in the surveys um, he, by perhaps ten points. So it was a significant. Im the presidential um, uh, endorsement was important for Mar. So it, it speaks to the general popularity of the president, and in fact, you know, the, the satis among some, the satisfaction with the administration. But as I'll say in a little bit more about in a minute, I mean, it was not nearly enough to overcome Mar Rojas's own weaknesses as a candidate. So at the end of the day, it didn't, it didn't really matter. Okay, so on to the elections. Uh, just, I'm not, I won't spend a lot of time on each of these, but there are, I'll try to be selective here. Uh, so touching on some of the, for those, also, you'll have to forgive me. I don't really know until coming here sort of the level of knowledge about the Philippines that would be in the room. So if I'm repeating stuff that's basic and understood, forgive me. If not, I hope it's useful. Um, uh, so there are a few things that, that are important to understand to understand this recent election and all elections in the Philippines. I mean, one, there's some, some you know, interesting and perhaps unfortunate idiosyncrasies with the system. It's a synchronized election, at least every six years, so that everyone from the president down to barangay captains or um, even barangay councils are elected. So it's, I forget the number, it's some tens of thousands of officials are elected uh, during this, uh, during uh, the presidential election year. Um, 
Uh, it's a system where for the presidency and the vice presidency, they don't run as a ticket, right? So it's, uh, um, people vote separately for the president and for the vice president. And in fact, it seems that most Filipinos prefer it that way, even though I think there are real political issues with that, but that's the way it is. Um, and most importantly, particularly with an election like this one, where you had five candidates for president, there's no runoff system. So it's almost, almost by definition going to be a plurality victory, and that's been the case, you know, even with Estrada. Estrada didn't win with a majority, 46 or 47 percent. Right? Um, and then uh, it's also worth uh, knowing that with the, the other, the other, in addition to the presidential and vice presidential election, there are national, nationwide election for the senators or for 12 of the 24 senators. It's a national constituency so for the senators. So you have president, vice presidents, and senatorial candidates all running in a national constituency. The rest of the Congress are by district, and then you have local, provincial and local officials. Um, it's also, for those who don't know the Philippines, it's important to, under, to know that political parties are almost meaningless in the <coughs> Philippines. They, I mean, they, they have names. They, some of them have some legacy. Uh, very few of them have anything approaching consistent membership or, for that matter, um, meaningful or consistent programs. So they're really just sort of labels of convenience for the most part, and especially around election time. Um, uh, as with any modern-day election, money is important. And uh, again, Philippi Philippines, given that it's a large island country, um, uh, media, especially again, talking about national campaigns, media, media coverage has really become the, or media projection has really become the way, the most important way to campaign nationally. So the cost of television uh, being, is very expensive. And so running for election, is, especially at the national level, is, is very expensive. Tens of, no, hundred, for presidency, hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, and, uh, and there's very limited uh, and very lightly regulated financing of campaigns. Um, uh, election administration has always been something of an issue from year to year or election to election. Uh, the Commission on Elections uh, has a, quite a bit of authority in the Philippines or can have quite a bit of authority depending on who's running it and how well it's run. Um, the, the issue in mo most recent years has been that they moved to an automated election system uh, in 2000. 10 or 13, um, and so there have continued to be sort of residual concerns or, or a lack of trust about the automated system, but actually, well, I'll come to that, but it seems to be working reasonably well. And then the last, the last point is, again, not unlike other places, but maybe the Philippines was a forerunner in this regard. Public opinion surveying is <laughs> just incredibly influential. Uh, there are two major polling firms, three actually now, that do good and very credible polling. So, so these, campa these campaigns li I almost live and die by you know, the public opinion surveying, you know, who's up, who's down, where, why. Uh, so it's, in, that, in that case, it's very, you know, very quite sophisticated um, uh, sort of voter response-driven campaigning now, again, especially at the national level. Um, with regard to the candidates, so five presidential candidates, uh, six vice presidential candidates, 
Uh, and again, this speaks to the parties. Four of the vice presidential candidates were independents. One of the presidential candidates were an independent. So, you know, they didn't even bother to <laughs> have the pretense of a party. Um, uh, and then, uh, in addition to that, as I said, you've got the senatorial uh, uh, campaigns, which are national, but then, um, you know, multiple, multiple congressional and local level. The, the point, just for now, on this is simply that uh, another important aspect of Philippine politics, which you're probably aware of, is just the, the potency, the persistence um, of dynastic uh, politics, family, political families um, that um, uh, hold multiple offices and across generations, something that I gather is developing in the Indonesia increasingly, right? Um, and then, uh, so just to sum up, uh, and again, this is really, uh, people tend, well, I'll, I'll refer to that. People used to refer to sort of Philippine elections as being determined by the three Gs, guns, goons, and gold, um, which, and, and you still hear this, you know, talked about. And there is some truth to it, and it's probably more true still at the local level than at the national level. But at the national level, um, it really is much more, you know, what I'm calling here the four Ms, it, it's very much about messaging, messaging. I mean, who's running, what they have to say, how they present themselves. I mean, so the, I mean, these are modern, for president and vice presidential contests, and to some extent the senatorial contest, these are modern, you know, very sophisticated campaigns. Um, uh, so the messaging is very important. Media is very important. Television, but also uh, increasingly in this election, Social media was, was quite significant. And also there were three presidential, televised presidential debates and, for the, uh, and one televised vice presidential debate. And the, the indications are that, that those had significant influence on the way people thought about the candidates. Uh, didn't change things fundamentally, but, but it tended to reinforce, I think, what people thought. So the media is important. The fourth, the third M is machines, traditional political machines. And we can talk more about that, but as this is not new, uh, this, this notion that's perpetuated among some people who follow the Philippines that kind of elections are delivered by, by political machines, just time, at least again at the national level, time and time again has disproven, been disproven. So the candidates that have or had the established political machines, that would be Jojo Binay and Mar Rojas, in fact, they did not win, and um, the, the, their machines, their organizations, might have helped somewhat, but but were not nearly significant or powerful enough to really make a difference. And then the fourth M is the money, which of course is necessary for for all the the, the three the other three M's. Um, uh, and as I as I mentioned, I mean, campaigning in the Philippines is is expensive, um, and you know has of course has implications for what happens once people are elected to office. All right, so quickly, I mean, the results, uh, um, I think we don't need to spend much time on that, but uh, you, Duterte, as you know, won with 39% of the vote. That's, people are calling this a landslide. I, I'm not sure that's the right term, but, um, but it was a significant victory. Uh, if you look at, um, you know, coming in 14 points uh, ahead of Mar. Rojas and a few points more than that ahead of Grace Poe, um, but uh, but other other in fact uh, President Aquino and 
polled with, I think, 41 or 42 percent in 2010. As I say, a prior, an earlier president, uh, Joseph Estrada, polled, I think, 46 or 47 percent when he was elected. So it's a solid victory by Duterte, but, but not, not a landslide. Um, on the vice presidential uh, front, uh, Lenny Robredo, who was, for those who haven't followed this, was, it, in fact, the administration's candidate from the Liberal Party, endorsed by the president, campaigned with Mar Rojas, um, and the wife of a, um, of, a, of a local government official who then became the secretary of local government and was quite well-known and well-respected until he died in an airplane crash. Um, so Lenny Robredo, again, family dynastic politics in a sense, sort of has carried on, uh, yeah. His, um, are we seeing the same thing that you are? Oh, let's see, sorry, next one. There we go, sorry, thank you. I'm seeing it here, but I'm mm -hmm. forgetting, reminded, thanks. Um, so Lenny, um, Lenny Robredo narrowly winning over Bongwang Marcos, Ferdinand Marcos's son. Um, when this, this can be quite significant um, in the future, and I'll come back to that. I mean, having Robredo as a vice president rather than Marcos. Um, okay, so just quickly an assessment. Stick with it, there we go. So overall, it, generally very high turn, historically high turnout, 81%, which is higher than uh, pri most prior elections. It was generally peaceful. Um, part of that may have been because there were actually quite a few uncontested uh, seats, um, which may link back to this issue of dynastic politics. Um, despite some concerns about the automated voting, uh, there, uh, I think Kamalek generally is seen as having performed quite well. And um, so Kamalek and therefore the outcome, um, I think is being generally being viewed as being credible. Um, uh, there was some sig significant, I think unprecedented from what people tell me, uh, sort of polarization within the social media, uh, particularly between the Duterte, well, Duterte camp, but also the, the, um, the Grace Poe and the Mar Rojas camps, because I think they were the ones who could have, I think people hoped would come together to defeat Duterte, and they didn't or wouldn't, so I think that created tensions even among more like-minded groups. Um, and um, so why did Duterte win? Um, I don't think it's really that much of a mystery uh, for these reasons I show here. Um, he's, I mean, he's a compelling figure. You may not like him, <laughs> and some people, a number of people don't, but he's a compelling figure. He has a certain charisma to him, and he had a compelling message, change is coming. So he was deaf, whereas Mar Rojas and even Grace Poe we're saying we're going to continue the, the uh, Aquino administration's basic policies and approaches. Uh, Duterte was about change. We'll do things differently. Um, and he had a degree of credibility that certainly the Grace Poe, who had very little actual political experience, had. Um, he has, uh, his track record as mayor of uh, Davao City, a, a major city in Mindanao, um, for 20-some-odd 20, 20 years. Um, and because of where he was from, but also his, be, he's Visayan, he's, his family's originally from the central Philippines, um, he, he appealed, he, 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 just, he won virtually all of the Mindanao vote, but a lot of the Visayan vote. And then because so many people 
in Manila, the metro, the large, very rich vote, the very vote rich area of Metro Manila and the provinces around it were so fed up with um, infrastructure and other issues. Uh, he won large in that area as well. And so by getting those sort of three, three vote block, blocks of votes, uh, he, he, it, would, it was almost an assured victory. And he won across socioeconomic classes. Actually, the more educated and the more affluent classes, he tended to, to do better. Um, so again, it's, it wasn't just a kind of a base populist uh, appeal. It was the appeal of this is a guy, because he's been a mayor, because he's gotten things done in Davao, he can, he can change things, um, you know, things that matter to the middle class. Um, and then he ran a very smart campaign. He came, uh, I don't know if this was intentional, but he came into the campaign very late which meant that uh, the administration, I mean, I know for a fact, the administration and others were, were very focused on dealing with uh, the challenge faced by uh, Jojo Binai, the, the vice president, um, um, and then also the challenge faced by Grace Poe, uh, who initially was leading in the polls. Um, and they effectively, not just the administration, but there were lots of anti-corruption charges against Jojo Binai, which brought his numbers down over time. For a variety of reasons, Grace Poe's numbers came down over time, and um, Duterte was just sort of there and um, capitalized on these failures, and, um, and also, as I said, the general weakness of, of Mar Rojas, whose numbers were always fairly consistent, about 22 to 23%. Um, so smart campaigns, simple message, uh, they use social media effectively, um, and then lastly, simply, again, if you looked at, I didn't go into this in detail, but if you looked at the other presidential candidates, they all had very real vulnerabilities, which I can talk about. So, I mean, Duterte has his own, but, um, but none of them were, in their own right, really strong or compelling candidates. And so Duterte was able to take advantage of that. Well, how long did he run his campaign? Uh, he, well, let's see, he... There were, there were rumors back, back last fall. The, the, the official campaign period only started in January or January. January, yeah. So he sort of danced around it in the fall and then said he wouldn't run. And then at the very last minute, actually, he took over someone else's uh, um, substitute. Substitute, substitute candidate, right, for someone else. So that would have been in sometime in January. But, but was it in December? Okay. But I mean, in practice, in, in, I mean, they had all been campaigning for you know a year practically before that. You know, just it wasn't the official campaign period. Okay. So, but the last point here is again, I think an important one to remember. While there's this, and it goes back to this point about a landslide. While while um, Duterte won a convincing victory. I mean, if you look, you know, eighteen nine, uh, nineteen thousand nineteen million Filipinos voted not for Duterte to the 16 million that did vote for him. So again, this is an issue with the plural, you know, this, this lack of runoffs and stuff. And the vote for Mar Rojas and Grace Poe was largely, again, I haven't gone into these details, but largely sort of the same, more or less the same kind of demographic. I mean, the liberal, I mean, the people who are generally satisfied with the existing, with the Aquino government and what it's done. I mean, that was the vote for, for continuity, in a, in essence, um, so so the 
so there was actually there were more people that actually voted for that general approach than there were for Duterte's, but that vote was split in half. And there were efforts to try to get them to come together, um, but that just was did not happen. So that's just a, I mean I think and I hope the Duterte administration <laughs> keeps this in mind. You know, it, it's not quite the quite the resounding you know uh, victory necessarily, or at least it doesn't imply necessarily that you know the vast majority of Filipinos actually endorse what he sort of might uh, try to do and what he represents. Okay. So just very uh, about a uh, little bit about Duterte and I, I mentioned I have a little bit about du, uh, Davao City where he was mayor because I think it's important. This helps understanding Davao helps to understand well where he comes from and what he is used to. So uh, so I mean Duterte himself he's um, he's not young anymore. As I said, he's from a Visayan family. Um, he's actually from a political family. So he's whatever people might say about him sort of being a not, not a member of the elite. He's a member of a regional political elite, not just, just not the, Manila, the national Manila-based elite. Uh, he's a trained lawyer. He, he's had all, his entire career in Davao City and uh, entered politics in 1986 and has been mayor most for a lot of the time since then with a couple other stints. Um, I have been to Davao a number of times and um, the guy, he's not known as being corrupt. Um, it's not to say he hasn't gotten money along the way, but he's, he's not an obvious or a traditional sort of corrupt rent-seeking politician by most accounts. And interestingly too, a lot of mayors and local officials you know, are involved in side businesses. This is where a lot of the, uh, you know, the issues with procurements and favoritism come in. And I'm not aware of he, be, of he or his family being involved in any major businesses in Davao. So, I mean, he's pretty much um, st stuck to politics and governance his, his whole life. And then he's got a, this guy is not a, <laughs> there are a lot of reasons why he and the Catholic Church don't get along, but I mean, he's not the paragon of, <laughs> of traditional Philippine uh, vir virtue. He's not, you know, the exemplar of uh, Pinoy's uh, <laughs> Don Matuid, <laughs> the straight path. Um, he's been separated. He's known to be a womanizer. He's got a number of children. Uh, my one visit with him, and this was a long time ago, involved going to a bar late at night. <laughs> so so this, is, this, is, this is who he, he really is. This is who he is. Um, so we'll see how that plays out. But Davao is interesting as a city because, again, it's, well, first of all, it's not Manila. And it's, it's a whole different world being, it's, it's, uh, it's, this, it's Mindanao. Um, uh, it's basically, uh, the economy is sort of a, an agri-based economy. Uh, there isn't a whole lot of industry there other than agribusiness. Uh, it's, while it's, it's not, it's in um, eastern Mindanao, so it's, it's removed from the, the Muslim conflict, but there are a number of Muslims in Davao, and it's also adjacent to areas where the Communist Party, the NPA, have been uh, active over the years, and still are active over the years, and also it's adjacent to areas where a lot of indigenous people are. So. So he has had a lot of experience with dealing with these different um, uh, armed groups and conflicts over the years, plus, plus the, the issue of criminal, crime and criminality in Davao itself. Um, and that's something that a lot, not a lot of Manila-based politicians have had. Um, uh, and then lastly, I mean, it, Davao is, I mean, it's Duterte land. 
um, and it has been for a long time. So, I mean, this is a place that he and his family have have run, uh, like, as I say here, almost like a uh, personal fiefdom for a long time. I mean, there's one other um, significant political family, but they, I think, the Negralises, I mean, they basically conceded to the Dutertes, I think, and, you know, have gone along with them for quite a while now. So, you know, what actually happens in Davao is very, there's not, I and mean, I've started to look into this a little bit, you know, there isn't a lot of transparency, there isn't, there isn't a lot of um, opposition to what's going on there. You don't, you don't hear anything bad. And there aren't very many places, you know, in the world where you're not going to hear anything bad. So, so it's, a, it's a place that he's, they've had a lock on for quite a while. And that will be a very interesting to see, you know, because it will be a very different world in Manila. So... Five or ten more minutes? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, getting there. So um, this is just... I found this, this image, this... Uh, I don't know if this was a billboard or a flyer, but it's worth... A couple things are notable here. Um, if you, if you can see, like the last point about leadership of Davao City, most cultural, culture-friendly city in the Philippines. That goes back to this point that, I mean, it's an area, Davao is an area where you have this mix of, of Muslims, indigenous people, um, Visayans, and Mindanaoans. So, so this is something he, he is familiar with and has, has managed over the years. But then the next point, <laughs> which is perhaps the worrisome one for those of us who care about sort of human rights, Justice and human rights must be interpreted in harmony with discipline, progress, peace, and security. So, uh, so this speaks to uh, you know, his apparent willingness to um, uh, tolerate or, in fact, encourage you know, extrajudicial or extralegal um, enforcement of the law, let's say. Um, so that gives you a bit of a feel for, for him. Um, so look, what's this going to look like? What's this administration going to look like? Um, what's he going to try to do? I mean, there's been so much. There's been so much chatter. I mean, both during the campaign and since, because he's such a um, shoots from the hip as much as he does, and just comments on everything, um, and even in many sort of self-contradictory ways. Um, it's it's a little hard. It's, it's all well. First of all, it's just very early, obviously, because. The administration hasn't taken office yet, but also there's so much sort of chatter. Um, I think that we all have to be careful in, in terms of trying to uh, uh, sort through it all. Um, so just a few observations. Um, he's a pragmatist, I think. He's not particularly ideological. It's clear he's not particularly ideological. I mean, very few Filipino politicians really are. Um, and he's used to being mayor. He's, um, you know, he's used to largely governing by um, the authority of the mayor and having very little opposition to, to you know, doing what he, he has want done in Davao. And I mean, we're seeing this. I mean, this is the way he's behaving, you know, with regard to policies at the national level. Um, uh, I think uh, Ty, you asked me yesterday if he was populist. He, his policies have not been populist in the sort of the classic sense of promising, you know, loans or, or gifts or land or whatever. I mean, toxin-like populism. Um, it, it hasn't been that. He's, he's, uh, his economic, the broad thrust of his economic policies aren't particularly popul populist as so far as we know. Um, but he is sort of a, I call a cultural populist. I mean, and that's just comes through in all of his 
mean, the way he talks, the way what he promises, um, his 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 profound anti-elitism. I mean, his profound distaste for you know elite institutions, political institutions, the media, uh, institutions like the Human Rights Commission. I mean, yeah. So so in that he's in that sense he might be considered a populist or at least an anti-elitist. And um, I do worry that there's no obvious or apparent commitment on his part to you know what we consider liberal democratic norms. Um, so and of course that's of course uh, a concern. Um, his cabinet, uh, as it's as it's sort of coming together, uh, I think will be potentially quite fractious. So how this that plays how that works will be. Um, could be quite challenging um, uh, and present some problems. Uh, his, he was elected on his promise to end drugs and criminality and address corruption in three to six months. You know, I, that doesn't seem very realistic to most people. I don't think most people care but about the three to six months. But what get, where it gets interesting, or one of the ways it gets interesting is the, the, the police are deeply involved in the drug trade. <laughs> um, and so too might be some of the military, but mostly it's the police, and as are a number of local politicians. So if he's serious about really doing something about drugs, you know, he's going to be encountering some serious... Uh, it's going to have costs and, um, and resistance from important... Um, uh, supporters of his at the moment. So how that plays out will be interesting to see. Likewise, he, he does not operate in an institutional void and the, and the Supreme Court of the Philippines is quite a act, powerful and activist institution and so it will be very interesting to see how the Supreme, you know, at some point there will, people, there will be legal challenges to certain things and um, so how, whether the Supreme Court um, and the judi judiciary more broadly um, kind of our sort of pushback against some of his uh, of his actions will be interesting to see. Likewise, I mean, again, corruption is a very he's he's highlighted the problem of corruption as all Filipino politicians do, but addressing corruption in the Philippines, like in Indonesia or anywhere else, is highly complicated, and he hasn't actually said anything about how how that will happen. And again, if he's serious about it, I mean, I mean addressing corruption has very real implications for, for politics and for political support, uh, for politicians and political support. So, you know, is he really in a position to undercut um, uh, his support base? Uh, the other important, significant campaign promise has been to move to federalism. The Philippines is a unitary state. There has been some, in the 1987, there was some discussion of federalism, but, but it was, I think, pretty strongly rejected at that time. But over the years, there's been periodic desire to consider federalism. Um, but that would require con constitutional change. And there are a whole number of issues that are, not surprisingly, that are politically sensitive with constitutional change and the process. So that will be a, to see how he proceeds with that will be a, a very big, uh, complicated challenge. Uh, infrastructure I've mentioned, and that relates back in some ways to the issue of corruption and integrity. I mean, if, to get things moving, maybe you have to cut corners. Is that a good thing? Uh, and who benefits from it? Um, I mentioned agriculture. I won't 
we can talk more about that. And then lastly, uh, foreign policy, you know, the big issue, the big question mark, right, most people have right now is sort of what his uh, approach will be to China in particular and very much related to that, the United States. And I mean, he's made a number of contradictory, uh, maybe somebody from the embassy will be happy to <laughs> clarify them. Um, but uh, it's, um, and of course it's, again, he's, he's not in office yet. So I guess to some extent he has that luxury, I suppose. But, um, uh, but I think it is, it is the case that he, he, he comes from being a mayor, and I'm not sure that he would necessarily see foreign policy as his, his highest priority now. So, so I think a big question will be who, who else within the administration will be actually shape, you know, be the, um, the shapers, the most influential shapers of his foreign policy. Um, okay, just last one, yeah. So just sort of looking. Uh, Oh, yeah, two more. Political landscape, so. Thirty-nine percent of the vote, that's significant. He's popular, but again, I think a lot of his actions may prove to be um, polarizing, perhaps sooner or later, but quite possibly sooner. Um, it is very significant, and this is one reason, one of the reasons I'm glad that he was elected, he's the first president not from, from Mindanao, not from the Visayas or from Luzon. And just to get that different perspective uh, and to be outside of the traditional uh, Manila, Luzon elite uh, could be a good thing, could be a good thing. Um, but again, Mindanao itself is only a quarter of the population. I mean, you add to that his Visayan uh, background and it's a larger, but so it's still not the majority of the population that kind of would, uh, having him be in Mindanao and will, will resonate with necessarily. Um, for the moment, at least, he's benefiting from the typical turncoatism that occurs after every presidential election. Uh, a large chunk of the Liberal Party, which <laughs> became the Liberal Party when uh, Aquino became president, now have defected and joined, um, joined uh, Duterte's very small uh, PDP Laban party. Um, the Senate's, that's in the Congress, this, and probably governors as well. Um, the Senate's a little different story. There, there they, the, the, there's less turncoatism. So there is a block of LP um, uh, senators in the Senate. So it will be interesting to see whether this, how the s senators position themselves as sort of a counter to Duterte, because it won't be coming, at least initially, from the, con from the, from the House of Representatives. Um, the business community was very, uh, most of the business community, community has been quite wary of him and uncertain what to make of him, so it's sort of a wait and see right now. And it will also be interesting to see whether, as is often the case with uh, Philippine presidents, whether you know, they have sort of their circle of preferred big businesses, uh, cronies, um, we'll see, whether and how much of that's sort of Mindanao oriented as opposed to uh, the rest of the country. Um, he's already in sort of a running feud with the ca and has been with the Catholic Church, so it'll just be, that's one of the things that will play out over time. He has invited uh, four members of the left um, into his cabinet. Um, and um, so he's, again, reflecting where he's come from in Davao City and dealing with these different groups. He's, he's inclusive in a way that others wouldn't necessarily be. 
So this raises a really interesting question, will raise inter interesting questions about sort of, will there, is there sort of a revitalized, you know, left in the Philippines, which has been pretty minimal, marginalized over the last 20 years, really. Um, and if, if the left does, is revitalized because it has more involvement in, in the administration, uh, what kinds of uh, splits will occur? I mean, the, the left in the Philippines has historically been very fractious, um, and so will this just result in more splits in the, within the left? Um, and let's see, big issues about his relationship and the role of the military and the police, I already mentioned that, not just because of the whole issue of uh, drugs, but, you know, I mean, at what point do professional police get uncomfortable, you know, uh, accept it going along with or actually participating in death squads or extrajudicial uh, killings. At what point does the military uh, get worried about the influence of the left, which uh, historically it's, you know, they've been fighting, and also the military now has become much more aware of the threat posed by China, um, so how, how Duterte conducts, conducts his foreign policy vis-a-vis -vis China will have uh, important implications for how the military responds to them. And as I mentioned already, the people don't tend to think about the other institutions in the Philippines, but the role of the Supreme Court can be very important. Um, and so how it, how it responds to um, Duterte. Um, okay, so I've, most of these I think I've touched on. Right, looking ahead. I think we're gonna see um, In some ways, like with the crime issue, probably signaling. I mean, it's already, I think, happening. Criminal, alleged criminals are just going to show up dead. Um, this is what happened in Davao City. Um, and he or the, the police or the Justice Department, perhaps, will just sort of say, oh, that's too bad. You know, learn your lesson. And, and um, we'll see this happen, you know, People will get the message, um, and it will happen more widely around the country. And my guess is that at some point, I mean, as bad, normatively as bad as that is by, in its own right, then you'll see abuses start to, you know, questions about, well, was this revenge? Was this a personal grudge? You know, so a range of abuses potentially following from this. Um, so, so that's, of course, worrisome. Um, I think we'll also see that because he has to deal with a, a Congress and a Senate, he'll probably try, if he is serious about moving things forward as quickly as possible, he's going to try probably have to use executive orders and maybe emergency degrees. And again, whether those are considered legal or not will be an issue. And then also to move things forward or in the ways that he wants, it'll also imply probably an aggressive legislative agenda, which we haven't heard very much about. Um, and so what that looks like. Um, I've mentioned the divisions in the cabinet. I've mentioned the participation of the left, the Senate. Uh, with regard to foreign policy, um, we're, for those who aren't following this, uh, people are waiting for the, the unclosed tri uh, tribunal to issue its decision on the, on the Philippine uh, case uh, soon, within a month, I gather, right? Um, and so that will be a very, that will probably be the, very, the first significant foreign policy uh, decision that he'll have to deal with. I mentioned the federalism and the constitutional change, which also relates to the future of uh, the uh, comprehensive agreement on the Bangsamoro, the Bangsamoro Basic Law, which he is linking to federalism, which I'm assuming the Muslim, the MILF will at some point take issue with, 
but they haven't yet. Um, and then the executive judiciary relations I've mentioned. So, last point. Um, will we come, there's the question that is asked um, and may be asked more going forward. You know, are we going to see another scenario similar to the way it was with Joseph Estrada, who basically, um, for a variety of reasons, um, um, not just lost the support, but was actively opposed by segments of the Manila elite, and eventually, you know, there was a um, impeachment trial, and then EDSA II, uh, a mass uprising at which. Um, Estrada was forced to step down and Gloria Macapagal Arroyo became president. So is that a sort of potential future scenario regarding um, Duterte? Now, of course, it's way too early to know, and this is all purely speculative. Um, um, and so we, I don't know. The, but it is the case, I think, there's generally, at least among the elite, sort of this EDSA fatigue, people have come to, talk, to have come to realize that there are real costs associated with that kind of mass, uh, mass movement as a way to remove a leadership. So there's added play. Um, but again, the, the fact that um, Lenny Robredo, the Liberal Party Aquino coalition candidate as the vice president, continues to make that a possibility, which if it had been Marcos who had won as vice president, then that coalition would not have wanted Marcos <laughs> any more in office than they want Duterte. So, so that, that is in play. Um, and so, you know, it'll be interesting to see how Robredo positions herself, what role the president continues to play, um, or how soon. And then, of course, the interests of big business and the military um, will be important. Uh, the one thing that will make this different from what happened, were something like this to happen, that would make it different from what happened with Joseph Estrada, simply that there's a regional dynamic to this now. I mean, Duterte represents Mindanao and maybe the Visayas. So, and, and Joseph Estrada was part of the Manila elite, even though he, he portrayed himself as being some, as a populist, but he was a part of that world. And so were there a move by the Manila elite to... Um, dislodge Duterte, you might see some very significant regional you know, dynamics at play. Uh, what that would look like, I don't know. But, um, but so anyway, let me stop there. I've gone, as I promised, I've gone on too long. So that's, uh, that's one person's take on what this uh, might look like going forward. Thank you for your patience.